a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. I'm here with Damon Gamow, who is an award-winning director, writer, author, and activist. In 2015, he released his debut feature documentary, That Sugar Film, which broke Australian box office records, was released in 25 territories, and picked up a host of awards around the world. Damon's latest project is 2040, which is also one of the highest grossing Australian documentaries of all time and is currently being released internationally, including the States. We'll talk briefly about that. He has an accompanying book, 2040, a handbook for the regeneration. Always in demand as a thought leader and keynote speaker, Damon has received numerous accolades for his work, including a nomination for Australian of the Year 2020. Welcome, Damon. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. For sure. I want to start with um, yesterday we, we celebrated Father's Day, and I can't help but when watching both of your films, I watched The Sugar Film film many years ago and then watched 2040 last week. And I can't help but think that both movies are a response to you being a father in some way. And I want to begin there because in a lot of ways we're we're taught to sort of detach ourselves from the world and speak as objective uh, figures about a particular topic. But you throw yourself in as, as a person, has a personal interest in a particular topic, and you're like all in. Your family's in, you're in, your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, and your strengths, obviously, as well. But then when I came down to it, I was like, gosh, a lot of this, I wonder, has have these documentaries originated, and we're here to speak about 2040, but just on a deeper level, as you as an impact artist, how much of it is really about, gosh, I'm a father, and I'm responding to the world that I live in? Yeah, I certainly think pre-children, I was um, quite a self-obsessed person, as many of us can be, and uh, I certainly pursued a range of different careers, um, largely spent a lot of time trying to be an actor, which is very self-focused and really struggled to find any contentment or happiness within that space. And I think once our first daughter came along, uh, it did shift a lot in me and uh, and did change my focus. And I I often talk about the fact that, you know, I was very aware of my own time span and when my time on this planet might come to an end, but suddenly when you have children, you then project another sort of 40, 50, 60 years into the future and suddenly your timeline gets a lot longer in terms of the concern. So um, that certainly was a factor for me. And also I, I think I was aware that the world was becoming more and or less and less authentic, that I think we were, the system is sort of pushing us to uh, put out a, a version of us that isn't truthful, that is the glossier parts, that isn't actually the shadow elements or the darkness and, and the vulnerabilities, like you said. So I just thought that um, it was really important for, for storytellers to to be honest about that and be truthful about that. 
Um, and I think we're all craving it. And I think we then find a way to connect with someone and go on that journey instead of this sort of sense that we've got to be perfect all the time. And we, we play this sort of moral Olympics online all the time and we're not allowed to fail or make mistakes. And that is just a road to disaster. Uh, so I think the more we can throw up ourselves warts and all and, uh, and embrace that, then we've got a better chance of bringing people along for the journey. Was there a threshold moment? Because I mean, obviously there's risk, uh, right? In, in terms of, um, you know, now perhaps re reflecting back, you've had a fair amount of success with, I mean, these uh, two documentaries, but take me to that moment of like, shit, it's time to actually transition from the glossy world to this world. And while the glossy world, you know, there's a paycheck there and a certain comfort around industry has all, you know, has, has all the comforts and, you know, you get a certain amount of recognition. And then yet internally, your gut's aching for something more. Just just take us to that threshold moment of what it was like to actually transition across that moat. Yeah, it was very challenging. And I, um, it probably happened, I got sick, pretty sick, just after I'd met my wife. This is about 10 years ago. And I was in hospital. And I was put in a ward with three other, or three 80-year-olds. They're all mid-80s. And... Uh, I, I spent a week there, which was just an incredible time, actually, the stories we told and shared and them waking up late at night and having to go over and comfort them and the night terrors and everything. It was um, a fascinating experience for me. And I, I sat up one night in bed at 2 o'clock. I couldn't sleep. And I, I thought if I was 85 in this bed right now, I got out a pen and paper and I wrote a letter to myself that said, are you proud of the things you've done? Did you actually take the risks? Did you tell the stories that you wanted to tell? Or did you continue to hide behind this version of yourself that was safe and comfortable? And in writing that, I just felt this, this sort of angst of like, no, I don't want to be 85 and have not taken these risks and jumped <laughs> off the cliff. So um, I'm very grateful. Uh, that week kind of had a huge impact on me. And, and I literally the week later started to write this short film uh, with my wife. It was incredibly daggy. It went completely against the sort of um, smooth sort of rolly smoking velvet jacket wearing Lothario that I tried to cultivate over 10 years of being an actor. It was a very daggy dad version of myself, but I wrote this thing and entered it in this, this short film competition, which was quite a big competition in Australia. They have about 500,000 people come out and watch your film and it won this competition. And so that was a, a real validation for me that, there was this other part of me that, that people were relating to. Uh, and then I found it very, very challenging to make that transition because I, you know, I was clinging on, my ego was clinging on to, to, to wanting to be perceived a certain way. And I was a bit reluctant to share that other part of me. But, uh, you know, ultimately now through both films, I've, I've learned to embrace that and just the impact the films have had, I think, because that did happen, um, has been really powerful. Uh, we, you know, if you look at any hero's journey or anyone that writes about the hero's journey of any sort, uh, the key element is to show your vulnerability very early on in the process. If, if we watch a story and we think the person's got it all sorted and they think they're better than us, then we just don't connect with that person. Um, and I think that's sort of where we're headed in a lot of our storytelling. So uh, ultimately, I've learned that lesson looking back on it, that that was the best thing that could have happened is to just to open myself up and, and embrace all elements of me, warts and all, and then... Uh, you know, take the criticism as it comes, but uh, know that that's who I am. So, uh, I mean, let's talk about that idea of vulnerability as currency a little bit, because you, um, I mean, uh, 
like transport that into sort of the climate movement. Um, uh, like to me, is there, I don't know. I can't say what the definitive yes, that the movement is really ex- is, is collectively looking at their own, own vulnerabilities. Like I see anger, I see angst, um, I see fighting, I see partisanship, I see both sides digging in, I see vested interest in archaic systems really just, just clinging on. Um, so how might, I mean, like how might your, the messaging, and I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the messaging of 2040, but while we're on this idea of vulnerability as currency, how might that play out in the larger movement? Like how could, like, I mean, how could we explore that as a movement as part of regeneration? Yeah, I think what's been lacking is probably um, across all sectors is the the deep work that's required. And I think even in the climate space, what's been missing is the truth of the moment of, of accepting that we are scared sometimes and that what's facing us is enormous and it's overwhelming. And as a parent, it's very confronting. And we're not as public facing with that and those emotions, especially people in leadership roles, as we could be. And when we do do that in a genuine sense, and I did that as a father making the film, I said, yeah, this is terrifying. As I accepted that, it then freed up the space for me to actually invite new emotions and take action and move forward. And I think that there is a huge sense of wide-scale paralysis across the general population in the sense that what do you do with this? It's such an existential idea. It's so hard to know how your little input can make a difference that it is much easier to compartmentalise, put it somewhere away and say, I just, I can't even face that. And all the psychologists I spoke to in researching the film talked about the fact that we have this window of tolerance and that there's only so much we can take. We have a limited capacity for overwhelming news. And you think of our news feeds now that are saturated with a range of different events and systemic challenges. To expect people at the end of a busy day, managing two kids, stressed at work, to then go to the cinema and watch a film about the reefs dying or about uh, the the ice caps melting is a huge ask. So I think we need to be much more strategic with how we tell our stories in this space and reframe this moment as an opportunity, as a huge opportunity to fundamentally transform how we interact with each other and all our living systems, to use our imagination to show what it would look like on the other side of this crisis so that we coax people out of that fearful state and don't use a language that's about depravity and sacrifice and giving up, but it's actually a language that says we can strengthen our communities, we can have cleaner air and cleaner food, and look at the how transformational that would be to all these issues. So uh, I get why we've done that. I, I understand why we've tried to use facts and data and logic to try and convince people that, come on, you've got to wake up. But that might have worked with inconvenient truth, you know, 15 years ago, but now we get it so much that as you, as you've said, we're we're a species that's evolved to tell stories and we want to be able to relate and connect with people. And we want to hear about these topics, but how they affect us at a health level, how our kids' futures affected, how the airs, they're all the things we value and share, no matter what our political persuasion is. So I think the more we can communicate with that authenticity at a heart level, as a person to person, we've got to humanise this topic and take it out of this academic politicised sphere and talk to each other as human beings, not just in this topic, across a range of topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and we don't have the tools at the moment, our system doesn't have the tools to deal with the complexity of these problems, we are communicating in short bursts, emotional outrage grabs, where we need platforms that allow real depth of communication and understanding so we can listen to each other. And unfortunately, with this, those things are running parallel at the moment. So mm. there's work to be done, but I think at least people are starting to acknowledge that, um, that our information environment is just as polluted as our ecological environment. And we need better sense-making tools to come together and make these kind of big decisions. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I think somebody, I'm, I'm butchering this quote, but um, somebody once said that we don't need another white paper about climate change. We have enough white papers to go like here to the moon um, in like uh, seeing I'm in terms of climate change. And yet, uh, you know, there is something about the scientizing, um, you know, I mean, at, as a creator yourself, you probably recognize this, but, you know, science is a form of colonization. I mean, we, all, we often think of nation states colonizing each other, but so do ideologies. In fact, I would say the ideology of science has colonized this um, conversation and as a result sort of broken the world into pieces. And when I look at more of an inductive approach that you've done, as opposed to a deductive approach, which sort of separates everybody out into silos and, term, and, and terminologies. And it's always been of great interest to me on why the climate movement hasn't embraced artistry as a form of messaging, um, as opposed to thinking that we need one more um, white paper and that if anybody's going to read past page 12, which leads me to, I think, what really grabbed my attention right off the bat in 2040, your opening scene. I love it. You, you're there with your wife, Zoe, and, and, and your child, Velvet. Is, is, see, that's her name, right? And you guys are both planting a tree. Um, you know, you have this moist soil running through your hands. And then over the top, you're narrating it and says, oh my gosh, I love my world. I love my daughter, but boy, she grown up in a bubble and then cut. And then it shows a scene of you uh, create a scene where all of a sudden, I don't know if it's a child's hands or adult's hands. I think it's a child's hands where, where it's a traffic jam. And I was like, that juxtaposition was like only in the field of artistic communication and messaging and inductive processes can we all of a sudden go, ah, I get that. You know, I totally get that. And which really raises the question, when all of a sudden you were thinking about these tools to do 2040, you threw yourself into the film, but you also threw like animation, you threw fantasy into it, you threw kids into it not literally, but in terms of interviewing children, which can be a sort of a hit or miss. Um, I would like to know a little bit more about like, wow, you know, here's my chance to message like I've never messaged before. Yeah, I did in the sugar film, but man, yeah, the world's dependent on less sugar, but boy, is the world really dependent on getting this message right. So this was another risk moment to me, I, I, I'm guessing. Like, how far, when all of a sudden you're sitting there as a director and creator, how far do you go with those storytelling um, tools? Because they may have been great interest to you and your film junkie friends, but you want to get this out to a billion people. So I'm just sort of interested in how that navigation and negotiation takes place with making a film beyond the facts, per se. 
Yeah, I think what doesn't happen enough, especially in documentaries, is that there's sort of a um, a framework that most documentaries fill now, and that is sort of slightly reverent, darker tones, maybe an interview with an academic in front of a bookshelf, and 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 then the film gets released. And <laughs> some of those are, are wonderful, and I watch them all the time, but I think sometimes they can play to a very narrow documentary-minded um, group of people. And that's great. But certain topics, I think, need to be amplified and broadened to bring in as many people as possible. And that was the intention with Sugar Film, was like, how do we tell this story in a playful way that's less, less reverent and brings in people that don't normally associate with these type of films? And that was the playfulness, we used, you know, lots of colours, that neon aesthetic, that the sugary, high-octane, Willy Wonka approach to it. And what was wonderful about that was to, to see the impact it had, not just in Australia but around the world, at a policy level, at schools, at boardrooms. And I would have people stop me in the street and say, look, I don't watch documentaries, but, you know, my husband made me watch this film and thank you so much and we've changed our diet and we've, you know, my husband's reversed his type of diabetes, but... And I really got a sense of, right, there's something in this. There's a way to tell these stories that can be broader. And, again, what that involves, as we alluded to before, is a sacrifice of ego because a part of me was like, well, oh, I'd love to just make the really, you know, lauded film that goes to the various film festivals and gets the, 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 the golf claps of all the in, in, intelligentsia. But who gives a shit if that person who needs to feel, see the film and lose 30 kilos doesn't see it? So, again you know, it's the way you frame the story. Again, sugar, I could have made it about fear and about how bad it is for you and you shouldn't touch it. But instead it was flipping that narrative and saying, yep, there's a problem, but framing the film as a solution that says, if you cut back on it and reduce it, here's the benefits you could have. So actually looking at it as, as a solution film instead of this dire negative scare tactic film. So I think I took all the learnings there and what we did in terms of the impact campaign and the reach of the film and thought, you know, I'd really like to apply that technique to this climate story because why aren't people being engaged? Why aren't the people that need to see this film seeing it? And again, this came up as a real challenge in some of the early cuts and we, I started sharing it with lots of people around the world to get their feedback. And, you know, some of the people that are involved with these festivals and whatnot would say, but, but, but we know this, Damon. Why are you doing this? We, we've already, we get this. I said, yeah, you get this. Yeah. And that's the problem. We've got to get more people to get this. And they're not going to get it if we play the same formula and tell the same story and use the same people and the same tactics. We have to think of new ways of inviting people on, humanising the story, grounding it. So that was really instrumental in shaping this film. Uh, you know, where are people at? Where's the audience? Are they bored here? Do they need a laugh? Is it too much facts and data? How do we get back into the heart? Um and particularly the, the solutions we chose were even if you thought climate change wasn't real, if you were sceptical on it, you would actually want to do all of these solutions anyway because of the benefits they have to our own health and our communities. And I think that's really important that we try and people don't understand, they hear climate change, but that's one of the symptoms that we're dealing with. We've got soil degradation, we've got ocean acidification, we've got deforestation, biodiversity loss, more plastic in the ocean than fish. Like all this, these things are going on but we get lost in the debate about climate change. So I really wanted the film to sort of be a look at the whole system and say, look, we've, we've, we've designed this system and it's given us wonderful things, but those things have come at the cost of our living systems. And we are now breaching the boundaries in an ecological sense. We're certainly breaching them in a social sense. We're seeing that particularly in your country right now, that all these things are connected. 
And unless we address the foundations, the architecture of this system that we've created, which is largely this sort of based on competition, intense competition and domination. And if you're very good at playing that game, you get to get to the top, accrue huge amounts of wealth, set the rules of the game. Unless we look at the underlying elements of that, we're not going to get through this because we're going to keep growing. We're going to expand our economy exponentially. We're going to double the economy nearly every 20 years. And we're already using double the resources on this planet that the earth can sustain. So that's a suicide mission. So how do we get these stories out, start to show solutions that are more about regenerative approaches, um, more about symbiotic and interconnected solutions. So we're not just these creating these hierarchies of dominance, but we're starting to decentralize and share things and, and work with nature instead of fighting and controlling nature to extract our resources and, and develop our productivity. And was that an early decision in the making of this message to choose existing technologies as opposed to the sexy venture capital, uh, you know, potentialities out there? Yeah, that was really important in that, in that as a father, what I didn't want to do is make a film that would have been an exercise in terrible parenting, which said to my daughter, here's what 2040 could look like. You know what? It's going to be fine. It's going to be great. We're going to work things out. It's going to be easy. Technology is going to save us. It was not, no, we, we had, it had to be a grounded or a muscular hope. And that's why this term fact-based dreaming is really important. I think in the film is that anything I show her in 2040 actually has to exist now in some form. The film is about extrapolating the things we already have, not about waiting for that magic bullet or, or, or technology, which might come and accelerate the, the solution, which would be great. But I think people come away from the film thinking, well, we've actually got everything we need right now to do this. And that's what I wanted them to feel and to know. Whether we get there is now the big challenge. We've got vested interests. We've got the political um, sphere as it is. But we actually have everything we need to do it. And people need to know that and feel comforted by that, that we aren't waiting for something. It's right here. Now let's just roll up our sleeves, shift the capital and get on with it. Hey, see, I mean, talk about, I was impressed with that term. Was that a term you came up with, that fact-based dreaming? Hmm. Um, I, yeah, um, I mean, I think that that's a sort of a nice um, uh, a massaging of sort of bringing the science in, but transforming the science, right? Or transforming the tech, I see. I mean, in order to make it feel human again, I mean, as opposed to, um, I mean, the humanizing comes in through the dreaming, allows you to project forward to 2040, which invites me to ask this question about kids. Um, were you encouraged uh, to bring in kids? Were some people like, I don't know if that works for me. Oh, that's cute, but it really doesn't work. Um, I'm going to hold back uh, my thoughts, but I be before I hear sort of be, uh, sort of a behind the scenes approach to like how did the kids come into the story, and then how did it all play out during editing? Yeah, so the kids were very important to me early on because I, in my research I was aware of how articulate some of these kids were about this topic around the, the world and they knew far more than most adults about this. They're learning it at schools, they're passionate about it, they're taking to the streets because of it. But also I thought that if you're going to make a film about the future, what I didn't want it to be was just my version of the future. I mean that's, you know, especially sort of middle-aged white guy's version of the future. I thought it was really important to, you know, consult the generation that are going to be inheriting this world and, and what do they want to see? What are the things that they're learning about right now that excite them or, or, or get to make them feel hopeful? 
And to be honest, so I did that process first and interviewed about 120 kids in, in multiple countries. And it was a really challenging and beautiful experience. Um, sure. A, yeah. to hear the depth of their concern, that was quite alarming, but then also to just to hear how driven they are by these topics, how much they want the change. I felt very hopeful for my daughter's generation. And so, you know, we, we thought long and hard about putting it in the film and, of course, knew that some people would, would find it too sentimental or, 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 you know, too cheesy. But I just felt like, you know what, these kids need to be heard right now and they have a powerful voice. We're not listening to them as much as we should be. They have really important things to say. Um, let's give them a voice. And I think that's probably been the, the most exciting thing about the response to the film around the world has been the amount of kids or school groups that write to us, um, kids yeah. that send in their own inventions, kids that are excited now about a future career in seaweed development or microgrid engineering. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and we've had 950,000 kids be taught our 2040 curriculum materials in Australia. And the teachers are the ones that are just the most grateful because they say we're sick of teaching the kids about how dire things are, how, how depleted the oceans are and the soils. The kids are just shutting down hearing that stuff. They want to know what they can do about it. They want to hear about their potential careers of the future. So they light up with this stuff and they get excited. Then it kickstarts their own creativity and then they just, the, the momentum grows. So I think there's huge lessons to be learned here that, that we, these kids are so switched on and they're open-minded, they're creative. Let's start filling their heads with the, the information that could actually create enormous change and not just keep telling them how bad things are, but actually switch that narrative and, and embed it in our curriculums because as we know, they're going to have an enormous challenge ahead. So we should be doing everything we can right now to arm them with the best tools that will equip them for the troubles that they're going to face. And is there, so are, are they doing the, the regeneration handbook? Can you take us a little bit about like uh, this moment of truth that we all have as viewers and audience members like, shit, that was a great movie. And then we walk out and sort of secular administrative life just takes over again and we move on. But uh, my impression is, is that you're looking for traction and I mean, you're looking once, once inspired to continually give breath to their own life by actually putting stuff together in their own communities. Casey, can you talk a little bit about how the whole ecosystem of 2040 is connected? Yeah, that's a really important point that I, I myself was, you know, countlessly watch a documentary and feel some kind of emotion, whether it was rage or frustration or inspiration. And then there's nothing to do with that emotion. And as you said, the, the inertia of the system just pulls you in and suddenly you're, you're scrolling your Facebook feed and that's dissipated. <laughs> so I, I just, with Sugar, we set that up and we had a bit of an ecosystem and it was just incredible to see people go there after the film and download the app, which allowed them to scan Sugar or download the recipe books and create that change. And so right from the outset of 2040, we work with a lot of different impact partners, about 50 different organisations, to sort of craft this campaign that would run alongside the film so that as people saw the film and they felt heart-opened and they were inspired to get involved, they could go to our website, hit this button that says activate your plan, and we asked them a series of questions about the type of person they are, what they resonated with in the film, how much time they have available, if they've got any money to give, and then we gave them six or seven things that they could do right there and then. And the response to that has just been so wonderful. In fact, better than any other response to the film has been that the public has brought to life the solutions that have been shown in the film. So, oh, uh, for example, there's a, a solution there about seaweed, which is this sort of really interesting bit of ocean technology to regenerate the oceans and the kelp forests to sequester carbon. So we put out a call for a crowdfunding for that. 
um, and raised almost a million dollars. That platform's now being built in Tasmania, the first prototype, because of people's you know, willingness to get involved. Uh, we did an equity crowdfund for a, a microgrid solution that raised a million dollars in three weeks. Again, because people love the idea, not only that they want to give money to it, they wanted to say, well, I can have a stake in this in, in the asset of this if it gets big, uh, which I think is a really interesting model moving yeah. forward. Uh, and then, you know, whether it's farmers switching to regenerative practices, we've had about 400 farmers sign up for that, people in educating girls online, the teachers in the curriculum materials. And what it speaks to is that people are desperate for something to do. They don't know what it is because we're not giving them those options. But if we can lay out a suite of entry points, not be prescriptive and say everyone eat less red meat and change your light globes, but actually cater to people's specific passions and needs, they've got a much better chance of engaging because it's going to align with their own values and they're going to stick to it and see it through. So we've just got some wonderful metrics now around that and we're continuing to roll that out through the through UK and now the US have adapted that climate action plan so that it, it points people to solutions in their own country or in their own region so they can actually see change. And, and our community loves that. They love being seeing the metrics come back to them regularly to say, look what I'm contributing to. I'm actually moving forward on this and making change. I'm not just feeling paralysed and spending my time online lamenting the whole system. Uh, I'm actually moving forward. And, and as any psychologist will tell you, that is the best way to alleviate any anxiety or fear about this stuff, especially with children, is to get give them a sense of doing something, achieving, planting trees, moving forward, making changes in their school. It's just a great way to, to sort of dissipate that anxiety. What... What does the activation plan look like around your house when all of a sudden it's custom to your house? I mean, what's it look like? <laughs> yeah, so we've had enormous changes in our house. Uh, I get, we thought we were sort of quite, you know, across this stuff in terms of sustainable practices, but certainly having done the deep dive over the last five years, we, we've had some wholesale changes. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we're very conscious of the foods we eat now. We're lucky enough to live in a region where we do know our farmers quite well. Uh, if we source our meat, we know it comes from regenerative practices where they're sequestering carbon into the soil. But again, we don't have a lot of it. Uh, same with our vegetables. Uh, we, we use sort of high carbon sequestering foods. Uh, we've put a solar set up on our roof now because it's very cheap to do in Australia. It's a bit of a no-brainer mm. for people, uh, which powers our home, our whole house and then more. We sold our car and bought a secondhand uh, Nissan Leaf, imported it from Japan for really cheap. <laughs> and we've got an electric car that we drive around. Uh, we have something called a, a sub pod in our backyard, which is a small unit that comes with its, this army of worms and it takes about 15 kilos of your food waste each week mm -hmm. and the, uh, the worms break that down and turn it into soil in the same unit and you can plant your, your organic veggies in that soil. Uh, we have a little grow tunnel set up, which is like a, a little sort of food hub in the backyard and uh, we, we work with another company who've developed an app that allows you to connect to other people with that tunnel or that are growing food in your community so you can start exchanging your food. So we're growing basil and we trade that for people with carrots and other people in our area. So it just decentralizes the whole food network, which I think is incredibly exciting. And our friends um, run this beautiful company called Flow Hive, which is a sort of a, a beehive unit that comes where you just literally turn on a tap and the honey comes out. So, um, Oh yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, amazing invention. So, um, yeah, look, we're fortunate enough that we've been able to, to, to implement those things in our house. But, um, you know, given the amount of talks I do and the amount, I, mean, I think if I wasn't practicing what I'm, what I'm preaching, it, it wouldn't sit with me at all. So we've sort of really dialed up uh, yeah. our home and how we operate because I think obviously, you know, if you're trying to spruit this stuff, you've got to live it and walk the talk. For sure. And lastly, how do you, um, it's been a huge success in Australia and I'm guessing a few other countries as well. 
now you're coming to the United States or looking to make inroads here. Um, how's that, um, how's that playing out for you? Like where, like, where are you, what can help would be ideal for you, um, in terms of the States? Yeah. So we've had a few false starts. Obviously, um, we were, I was about to come over and do a five week tour and then the coronavirus hit and then we were about to launch online and then, um, all the sort of the racial tensions flared up. So, uh, obviously the, the schedule has been moved around a fair bit. But we launch uh, next week. So on the 26th is our first opening Q&A and we're doing a virtual cinema tour. So a lot of the cinemas have got together and you can still watch the film in session times with groups of people, but they watch it online and they are accompanied by a special Q&A. So we're doing nine Q&As in a row on the specific themes in the film. So there's one on Regen Ag, there's one on the oceans, one on empowering girls and women, one on transport. Um, uh, with really wonderful people from, you know, that are in the climate space, environmental space, uh, leading economists. So they're really going to be quite robust conversations. Um, and so far, uh, the response has been just wonderful in terms of the reviews, you know, all the, all the sort of the, the major outlets, New York Times, LA Times, have just given us just really wonderful reviews. So that's been encouraging. And, and I think people have seen it as a film for this moment in the sense that if people are feeling despondent and a bit unsure of what to do, that there are solutions and there are systemic ways out of this uh, and these solutions are lying around we're just not focusing on them at the moment obviously we're we're sort of locked in this limbic war online trying to prove who's right and uh, <laughs> being polarized polarized and in, in this sort of tribalist battle at the moment um, but if we go beyond that and put the phone down for a while people will see that there's an extraordinary amount going on from wonderful people that care about our future yeah. and care about our children and uh, they need help and they need our amplification right now so um, if you're looking for something to believe in and something truthful, look to the soils and look to the ocean and look to the atmosphere Amen. because uh, that's the truth right now. And I think if enough of us focused on that, uh, we, we'd get through this and find a life of meaning and purpose. Well, we can definitely use you in other states. Uh, you maybe want to do more than five weeks here in the States, but I, I understand you have a family for sure. That's a long time to be away from uh, from family and perhaps they can come with you. But um, so inspiring, uh, Damon, to hear your message. Um, you're so dialed in on the humanity portion of it. Um, the science is there, the humanity is there, the heart's there, uh, the messaging through artful forms is there. And you know what? The most important part is this whole thing's playful. It's like, you, you know, that that's, that's the little nugget of this whole thing. That's why I love the kids being in there as much as yes, they're articulate, but it was like that playfulness is like, I saw my young boy giving, you know, he can't talk like that yet because he's only two, but it's like, wow, he's right. 2040. I mean, you, you and I are going to be old. Um, it's really them. And uh, so to be able to sort of coalesce and massage and turn that all into a nice mosaic um, is, is really a testament to you and your team. Um, I know it takes hundreds of people to make uh, this work. I mean, obviously, you're the front-facing persona, the whole thing. Uh, but, I mean, behind the scenes, I mean, you and I know that, I mean, there's a, a galore of people that have worked long shifts at night um, and in unvalored uh, positions as well that uh, go into movie making. So thank, uh, thank you so much. As I mentioned earlier on, we're here with Damon Gamow, uh, director and creator, writer, of 2040 and also that sugar film 2040 is about 
to be, um, I'm going to say unleashed, not released, unleashed here in, in America in a country that needs it more than ever. So thank you, Damon, for your time. We really appreciate it. And I mean, we view um, Australian Australians as, uh, as wonderful mates. <laughs> Thanks, Gina. I appreciate your time and uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 